the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following is a conversation between Sarah Rosenwartel, president of the Urban Institute, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving, on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM, in New York City. It was just over 50 years ago, 1968 to be precise, that the Urban Institute was founded to measure and evaluate the effectiveness of President Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. Tonight, we'll talk about how it has evolved since then, but more how it is preparing for the challenges of the coming half century so we have a country where everyone can rise. And we'll do that with Sarah Rosen Hortel, the president and CEO of the Urban Institute. Good evening, Sarah, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Good evening. It's great to be here. You know, people hear on the news all the time that according to the Urban Institute, a nonpartisan research organization, and then they go on to report the story. But that's about the extent of what most of us know. So who is the Urban Institute? Well, we are a nonprofit research organization. Um, We're made up of people who are passionate about uh, building empirical evidence and doing analysis of data to help Uh, decision makers make better choices all across society on things that improve people's lives, strengthen communities. We have a special focus on looking at things that will help to close equity gaps, expand economic opportunity for families and individuals, and things that help us build a kind of prosperity that's shared where everyone can benefit. Mm -hmm. Now, for people I know who are familiar with your organization, they described it as rigorous, factually accurate, and maybe a little left-leaning. Would that be a fair assessment or not? Um, I think the institution doesn't have a lean, Mm -hmm. but the people we we draw to it are diverse and have a broad variety of perspectives, but they're people who are committed to looking at questions of poverty and opportunity. You recently commemorated your 50th anniversary at what was dubbed the Next 50 Changemaker Forum. What is a changemaker, and who can be a changemaker? So... Once upon a time, we thought of changemakers particularly as people in elected offices of power, 535 members of Congress, a few agency heads at the federal level, and if you're being broad-minded, city and state too. Mm -hmm. Um, But today, people who are changemakers can be found all across society. They are social entrepreneurs, people who run nonprofits who are trying to deliver services. They are philanthropists who uh, in communities and are the the grandest, most successful of our titans who are investing their resources in trying to drive drive change. And we want today to be a partner to help improve the decisions of all of these different influencers in society. Yeah, that's really interesting because essentially what you're saying is that the federal government's role has changed pretty significantly from what it was 50 years ago in solving these problems because of what you just described, these change makers. Would that be a fair assessment? I think that's absolutely fair. And I think the it's not just it is um, it's not that the feds have 
um, left the playing field. Mm -hmm. But I think that their capacity to be innovative and drive change at least right now with the partisan divisions that we have across society, is more limited. But they can be influenced by seeing good, promising ideas from across the country. And so we want to be sort of handmaidens, helping to empower good decision-making and spark new ideas um, in places that will ultimately be able to be able to be able to work at scale. God, yeah. So you're sort of an incubator. Get those ideas, and once they prove that they are, the proof of concept is there, let's see if we can ratchet it up with the federal government. And if there are bad ideas, it's important that people know that they're not working sooner <laughs> yeah, rather yeah, yeah. than later after we spend a lot of energy and effort on them, too. And let's, let's include money. That's right. <laughs> um, give us some insights, Sarah, and some examples of how racial injustice is baked in to the important social issues we are facing today and what you guys are doing to try to address that. Um, well, let me use um, uh, where we live and how people – um, homes have value is just one great example. I mean, we made policy decisions, shameful, I would argue, policy decisions in many cities, many communities over many uh, decades to segregate where people have a chance to live. And as a result, if you still look at how we uh, sort ourselves across geographies, our society is deeply segregated, which also means our schools are deeply segregated. And it also means that the homes that people live in, in neighborhoods that are concentrated black, for example, don't always appreciate at the same levels as homes that um, may be in majority white neighborhoods. There's nothing different about the homes. There's nothing different mm -hmm. about the families and the people. And even if today you take those two homeowners from a similar starting place, their ability to accumulate wealth is different, and that reinforces, perpetuates wealth inequality, which today is greater than it has ever been. The number of black homeowners today is the same, the same rate of black homeownership we have today is when we had 1968, which was the year the law that made discrimination housing illegal My. was first passed. Mm -hmm. So these things are kind of baked into society in ways, and we've got to go look, not just describe the disparities, which if you reinforce something often and often enough, it actually becomes sort of self-fulfilling and reinforcing of our own society's mis Give, you know, misfortune. But instead, we've really got to actually look at the root causes and try to help us unpack and disentangle those causes in order for us to overcome the, um, the past. Gotcha. Let me stick with baking. Are you concerned that the algorithms that are being baked into artificial intelligence could have a legacy of discrimination and are really just merely exporting that from the analog world to the digital world? And if that is the case, what do we do? I am concerned, uh, and part of what we need to do is we need people who um, are thinking about that problem involved in the design of the algorithms. I don't believe we're going to go back to a world where we don't use knowledge, mm -hmm. but we need to make sure that the knowledge we're relying on to make decisions is better and doesn't have these uh, negative forces. So, for example, we have a working group right now that is working with lots of other actors across society to see how um, uh, the algorithms that are often used by employers to decide which resumes to interview, which candidates to consider, they may have norms built into them from the past that have segregation and discrimination at their heart. But it is also possible that we can use algorithms to figure out who 
has maybe not the credential for the job that we've once looked for, but they may have the capability to do the job. And those same analytic tools, um, AI and others, could help us find that. So it really requires somebody to look behind. It, it's the black box that's scary. If mm-hmm. we don't know what we're relying on and we can't analyze its effects on sorting, we could end up baking these in more uh, more firmly and hardening the inequalities. But it's possible even that you could use some of these algorithms for good, yeah. that they could help unpack some of the very structures that I was talking about before. And so my hope is that we develop the expertise to be a sorter of those effects. Yeah. I think sometimes the way we hire people is pretty antiquated, and somebody has to take a look at it and and just review it from top to bottom. Um First off, as you were just saying, you have to look at a person's potential, not everything that they've achieved. And I had a a fellow on the show once who talked about that perfect cover letter Mm -hmm. and how all the English and all the grammar has to be perfect. And he had a hard time getting a job. He's now a CEO of a nonprofit organization. (laughs) But he said, you know, nobody asked me in this, does it make any difference that I speak five languages and English is my fifth language? (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) But he had an adverb wrong, and that was essentially – Essentially it. Well, sticking with structural racism, um, you're doing a lot of things uh, around that, such as Measure for Change, which is an initiative examining racial equity and inclusion within organizations. Let's talk about the Urban Institute for a moment. And what are you doing within your own organization to try to address that? So for the last five years, we've been pursuing what we call our DEI roadmap, and it has three components, the most obvious of which in some ways is the composition of our workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, and people think of that principally as being about hiring, which is critically important, but equally important is about retention and um, making sure that everybody is has a chance to get ahead within the organization on a level playing field, which means clarity about what it takes to succeed. Too long in society, those norms were communicated sort of informally in ways that really advantaged some who were more like us and disadvantaged others. Yeah, so a big so, thing about an organization, too, is that people, if they can see the fairness because it's transparent, it makes a big difference. That makes a big difference. And I'm, I, I wouldn't pretend that we have this all right, but this is something we're working hard on. Mm-hmm. Beyond composition, though, we think it's critically important that you really examine racism and its consequences in the root of the content of your work. If what we did was to continue to simply describe disparities, describe the disadvantage that some populations have over others, without any examination of its roots, using language, uh, I always use the example, um, some people say a person earns less than another. But you could say a person is paid less than another. You convey a very different thing about the worth of Mm -hmm. the individual. So we really want to examine the language we use to talk about justice-involved populations or Latinx communities or others. Um, So the content of the work and what questions you ask is critically important. And then the last component is about the culture of the organization. At the end of the day, you need a place where every person, regardless of where they come from and their lived experience, feels like they can be their own true selves. That means listening and hearing some hard truths and really getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you that in the last couple of weeks in my organization, we've had some very painful conversations around assumptions that people used in pursuing work. you got to just go through that, live it, and own your responsibility for the hurt and harm that sometimes people experience um, in ways that people um, aren't even aware of. Yeah, and, yeah. 
do a lot of listening. Do a lot of listening. That's right. And as you say, if you don't have that inclusion component going there, you're not going to get the retention because you think your numbers look good, but people don't feel like they belong, and that makes all the difference. And, and retention is important not just because you want to be an organization that has uh, a rainbow color in your workforce. Mm-hmm. It goes to the quality of the work we right. do. We can't understand the society that we're trying to help uh, improve if we don't have all of the different experiences at the table when we're figuring out what questions to ask, uh, collecting information, interpreting the results. It really requires that we ourselves, to be good at our jobs, are different in who we are. You are involved in so many things. Let me ask you about a couple of your initiatives and projects. Um, One of them you're doing in coordination with the Kresge Foundation, the Brookings Institute, and Living Cities, and it's called the Shared Prosperity Partnership. What are its objectives, and what have you been able to achieve? Well, at the most obvious level, the objective is that when cities, whether they're cities that are uh, have long struggled, places we've been working like Detroit and Fresno that are really uh, struggling to get some economic momentum, or places that are thriving like Arlington, Virginia, where Amazon, Amazon HQ2 too. is yeah. about to land, mm-hmm. we're working in all those places, but that the growth that they experience when they experience it is designed to be the kind of growth where the benefits innered all the population mm-hmm. and not just the top. That's the critical challenge we're finding in our society, and it's mapped on our cities as well. So the aim of that initiative is to go in and help those places make sure their growth is um, an inclusive kind. In order to do that, the problems that um, are you work on on those challenges are different depending upon what's important to local leaders. So we're uh, very unusual, I think. Uh, in We're here from Washington and we're to help, not to tell you what to do, <laughs> but for you to tell us what you're trying to do mm-hmm. and see if we know something or could analyze data or we could bring an experience from another city that would be helpful to you. And so this is a case where our work plan is designed not by us, not by Brookings or urban or living cities, but by a group of local leaders who say, this is what we want help on. And then we look in our institutions each and say, what do we have that can be of support? Back to listening again. Back to listening. And you know what? There is that history of national organizations coming into communities and just sucking all the wealth out of it and not having those locals benefit from <laughs> any of it. So it is a an inspiring program. There are many challenges uh, that we face in this country, but I don't know if there's anyone, uh, any one of them that is more difficult than affordable housing. Um, You have focused on a regional housing framework for the Washington, D.C. area. Tell us about that initiative, and how's it going? Well, I would say we're making good progress, uh, not perfect. Um, And, in fact, the arrival of Amazon uh, to D.C., um, had a really uh, powerful benefit, although there's you know concerns about the growth and whether the growth there will be one that we can control and avoid some of the adverse consequences. We're familiar of with Seattle. that here in New yes. York, you know, <laughs> uh, just a little bit. My hometown, um, but uh, it's also focused the conversation on this problem. So at at the root of the problem of affordable housing is the laws of supply and demand. And if you, what Urban's been doing is we looked at the population growth and the incomes of the people that are in the area and the supply of housing, and we're growing much faster than we're increasing the number of units. So the strategies you need are to produce more units 
affordable at the levels where people uh, need them in the market, to preserve units that are naturally affordable, don't let them get swept up in the market, and protect the character of neighborhoods and tenants. So we did an analysis at jurisdiction by jurisdiction, how many units, at what income levels do those community need, and we got the council, Regional Council of Governments to adopt it, the business community put some muscle behind it, and now each of those jurisdictions has to map plans out to produce the... Mm-hmm quality of affordable, quantity of affordable housing that they have. And some of them are honestly further along than others. And some of them would say, we don't want that kind of growth and we're struggling to get a consensus. But now there's a roadmap and Mm -hmm. a plan that um, allows people to to work towards a goal that will hopefully uh, put downward pressure on rents over time. That'd be great. We'll keep an eye on that one. Uh, Last year, you launched the Prison Research and Innovation Initiative. Now, this is one of the few issues that people can agree on on both sides of the aisle, albeit for different reasons. What are you taking a look at? When we, as a society, about 20, 25 years ago, sort of decided that lock them up was the best plan to deal with our uh, real deep concerns about crime, one of the other things we did is we sort of closed the door on looking at what happens inside prisons. Um, And even as it's important, and I think we're doing other work to Um, try to find alternatives to prison because in many cases it's not particularly effective. We also have to recognize that we're going to have an incarcerated state for some time. And the experience of prison shouldn't be counterproductive to what we're trying to achieve in society and shouldn't be inhumane. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what we're really looking at – and so so one is we need to understand the the experience of prison and what it does to people and whether it's effective at preventing crime in the future – um, but we also need to understand um, uh, sort of data and efforts that prison being this sort of black box, um, we don't have any transparency into, into experience. So we're working five states which have identified individual prisons in their system that are interested in innovation. We're helping them to create, collect a whole lot more information about the lives of the prisoners there and their experiences and trying to help figure out what kind of programs work to make the um, population become more successful when they're not in prison. Stop the revolving door. Stop the revolving door. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, every field learns and evolves and gains new insights, sometimes recognizing the way they've been approaching things is not doing much good or actually can be counterproductive and making the problem uh, even worse. Since you arrived at the Urban Institute back in 2012, what new understanding about these challenges has the field come to? Goodness. Um, so many. Um, I, I, well, let me, let me talk about two things that we've come to realize about how we do research mm-hmm. that I think uh, are really important. Um, once upon, and I started to talk a little bit about this before. Once upon a time, um, give an example, Urban Institute essentially defined the field of pair testing to help us document and understand the extent to which we have housing discrimination. That, that work, which I think uh, immensely proud of, was done over many decades by a largely white-led team mm-hmm. um, without anyone with the lived experiences of the communities that we were studying. Um, today, we increasingly try to use community-engaged methods, which means involving the community that we're studying in understanding the very question we're trying to study and what is most important to know, Collecting, helping us to collect the information, helping us to interpret the information mm-hmm. because their experiences may bring insight to the data that we can't have. Closer to the problem, closer to the solution. And then be part of designing solutions mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So certainly um, thinking about research is not a uh, – you have to be independent and you have to be rigorous, but that is different 
than being removed and disengaged and unaware. Yeah, this is a f- something that the field has really liked, I think, which is constituency feedback. That we always, I mean, I've been in nonprofit organizations that you ask your fellow uh, employees, you ask your board, you bring in experts, you do everything. No one goes to the population that you're serving and ask them, is this working or not, or what do you need? I mean, I'll, just recently we were designing a project, and this was my own blind spot where we were talking about who should be involved. And we looked at, um, you know, national experts on this question and academic experts and all that. Like. And then our staff said to us, wait a minute. What about the communities who this uh, intervention is going to be applied on? And we've got to constantly remind ourselves that lived experience is evidence, too, and mm-hmm. there's expertise in communities that we don't have. Yeah, and it also gets those communities to buy in when the so-called remedy or whatever you want to call it is being introduced. You know, you talked about academia, and I think there are a lot of people who have the impression that these reports are written by academics for other academics and they don't really get out there to the real world. And I know that trying to get uh, a greater clarity and coherence and impact and communicate more effectively is one of your top objectives. You uh, you've, um, have a new book called Elevating the Debate. Tell us a little bit about it and what those recommendations are. Well, um, when about eight years ago, we started on a journey to think about how do you take the insight from the research and lift it up in a way that doesn't um, sort of simplify it, doesn't make it, you know, dumb it down, but instead really communicates it so you have a bigger audience. And we kind of think of this as a almost a pyramid in which the smallest, tightest insight, it could be 140 characters in a, in a tweet, can reach a very broad audience. But for us, you might want to click down through that tweet to a a brief or a data visualization or a graph. And then from that, you could get to a research report. And if somebody wants to know the Greek letters and the um, design of the uh, formulas that were used for the research, they can find that too. And maybe they can even find the underlying data. So there's a transparency about the work, but that we realize that we're aiming for lots of different audiences Mm -hmm. out of the same insight. Credibility with the other scholars gives you credibility with a broader audience, but at the end of the day, impact comes from having more people see and engage with and give us feedback on the work that we do. Yeah, yeah. So you're really building gateways. That this and people will it. stop at whatever gateway they want, but at least you will have gotten them that much information, and that that's a that's an interesting way to do it. Let's talk a little bit about facts because I'm not too impressed with facts sometimes, at least in terms of persuasion. They don't seem to change everybody anybody's mind. But, you know, there are factual facts and there are emotional facts. Speak a little bit about how you have to communicate to get somebody to see things in a different light. Well, at the end of the day, what we're hoping people will do is connect and hear evidence. We know, unfortunately, that people often close their minds to facts that aren't consistent with their worldview. You're right. Um, um, But you may be able to connect to them through empathy or emotion. Stories are a very powerful way of connecting people to someone else's experience. On the other hand, as a rigorous researcher, you're not convinced that your anecdote is just as good as my anecdote, then suddenly we don't have any consensus about what the truth is. So the the art of research in this environment is to be able to start 
take a look at some data, form hypotheses, test that against lived experience. Um, and if you're confident that the storytelling that you're doing, that the um, individual cases or the uh, emotional connection that you can make through video or other efforts is consistent with the underlying facts, then have confidence. And again, use that mode of transparency so mm -hmm. people can test what you're sharing with them. You mentioned a moment ago impact. And you're a little different than other nonprofit organizations in that you're doing research and facts and insights. How do you go about measuring your impact? Um, it's a really good question, and every think tank I've ever been involved with wrestles with this. But there are, I think, two principal um, metrics we look for. The first is where you can see a change in a law and a regulation and a policy. Recently, the governor of Michigan took um, – changed the rules on their public benefit programs like um, TANF and SNAP food stamps. And they – to help – allow people to, for example, retain a car mm -hmm. or have a little bit of money in emergency savings without losing their benefits. They did that based on a report we'd written five or six years earlier. Um, but when a new age, uh, secretary came into the agency, he convinced the governor to make this change. For us, that's hugely powerful impact. But sometimes impact is getting the conversation to change mm -hmm. and force decision makers who are debating something in a much more political environment to at least reckon with the facts. So recently we did analysis of all of the different um, proposals for expanding or shrinking our um, health insurance system in this country, uh, everything from repealing the ACA to Medicare for all to just building on the existing system. And we put out information about how many people would – each of these different plans cover and how much would it cost society. Mm -hmm. And we saw in the presidential debates candidates having to defend their plans. They had to reckon with the facts. Mm -hmm. It's not going to necessarily change the outcome of what policy alone. You have to get people excited about your ideas. But now they can – we feel like we really elevated the debate in that circumstance. And we knew we may, had an effect when there was a Saturday Night Live skit that they did a few nights about the presidential debate. And they after some economists say, and we at the Urban Institute <laughs> puffed out our, our <laughs> chest because we were the sum economists. We were the sum economists. <laughs> well, now I know you've really made it. You exactly. Know I mean? <laughs> Saturday Night, John Oliver cited us the other day too. We said, okay, that's, that's, that's impact too. <laughs> well, both of them will beat the business of giving us. I'll assure you of that. Um, speak about your philosophy of leadership, Sarah. You know, the influence in your life that have helped shape you as a leader and maybe a lesson you've learned that has served you well in this role. Um, so I have, for much of my career until I was in this role, I was often um, a second to people who were in different kinds of leadership roles, mm -hmm. supporting and facilitating and helping them. And I'll be totally honest, um, it was a hard transition from, you know, the COO to the CEO. Uh, because I kept wanting to do the work rather than try to create a vision and lead people toward it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and because I could imagine doing the work for a long time, I kept thinking, well, let me let me share how I would do it, mm -hmm. you know, because then we'd have more people. But then all I would have is a whole bunch of people doing it my way, and then they would aim to maybe, um, you know, either resist because they didn't think I was listening, which isn't good, or they might – um, we might lose the benefit of their creativity and what they would have to contribute if we said together, well, here's a goal. Now let's think about what's your idea to get there. So I've been working really hard lately on trying to find ways to lead um, like one of my former board members, a guy named Freeman Hubowski does. Mm -hmm. He's 
he is my role model uh, on this. Yes, yeah, he yeah, runs yeah, UMBC. Yeah, he's, he's a great guy. He's an extraordinary leader who's produced more future PhDs of color than any institution in the country. And he, I've been a benefit of his um, support and mentorship, as of thousands of others. And he kind of smothers you in confidence and makes you believe that what you're capable of great things and then urges you to think about what those great things might be Mm -hmm. and then lets you know that if it doesn't go okay, he's there to be your support. And and that confidence allows you to try things you never would before. Now, I'm not necessarily exactly a Freeman Hrabowski, but I'm trying to get there more every day. Yeah, well, let's face it. We all have limiting beliefs. And if somebody can help us eliminate those limiting beliefs, we're always – what's possible is much more than we even ever imagined. Let me close with this, Sarah. Um, If you could reallocate resources that are directed to the issues that you're concerned with, where would you put more money because it's working? And maybe where would you take it away from because there simply isn't a lack of evidence to its efficacy? Well, I think I would put more money towards um, providing affordable housing for people at the Mm -hmm. bottom of the income spectrum. We know that housing is a platform, that stability, not going through a cycle of eviction and couch surfing, has a huge effect on the outcomes for children in families and for parents and their ability to maintain um, stable employment and create opportunity for their family. Um, And so if the incomes that our society is paying is insufficient to the cost of housing in many of our most opportunity-rich places, we've got to find a way to do it. Today, only 20% of the people who are eligible for public um, housing assistance programs of different kinds actually receive them, Hmm. which means – and that's millions of families who I think would have a better start in life if their housing was stable. That's worth money, I think, because we're paying for it on the back end. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, on things that maybe we should spend a little bit less money on, we've, um, I do believe higher education is a fabulous pathway to economic opportunity. But right now, both society through Pell Grants and um, uh, uh, all kinds of aid and individuals are investing money in a lot of educational programs that don't actually work, mm-hmm. by which I mean either they have very low likelihood of people completing and getting a degree of value, <clears throat> or they're educating people for things that aren't well aligned with what the labor markets are going to need in the future. Um, and we have to be more discerning about where we give the support to try to encourage our institutions to provide the kinds of opportunity. And for some people for whom classroom learning may not be the right way, um, we're huge believers at the Urban Institute in apprenticeships um, and other kinds of workforce training programs that help people get opportunity and become lifetime learners rather than four, four-year degree earners. Well, Sarah Rosenwartel, the president and CEO of the Urban Institute, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Tell us about your website, what's on it, and how people can help if they're inspired to do so. Uh, please visit us at uh, www.urban.org. I think you will find a um, – we have a blog called Urban Wire, which makes a lot of this research quick and accessible. You can read five, six paragraphs, tells you a little bit about what we're finding. And we'd love to hear your ideas. What are the problems in your communities that you think um, could be – we could help to elevate the debate? Well, thanks, Sarah. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Mike, really great to be here. Thanks so much. I'll be back with more of The Business of Giving right after this. The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at Biz of Give on Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving.